Amen. Good morning. I was upstairs for our Super Bowl chili chowder cook-off, and I ate about eight of those little Dixie cups of chili in approximately 10 minutes. So if I fall asleep up here, somebody just poke me. But we are so glad to be here on Super Bowl Sunday and also on Groundhog Day Sunday. The groundhog isn't getting his due, but I'd just like to shout out Punxsutawney Phil. Our sermon is not about either, well, it's kind of about soup, but it's also about the Beatitudes, which are found in Matthew chapter 5. And so I invite you to hear the word of the Lord. When Jesus saw the crowds, he went up the mountain, and after he sat down, his disciples came to him. Then he began to speak, and he taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For in the same way, they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Friends, this is the word of God for us, the people of God. Thanks be to God. Would you pray with me? Lord, sometimes we don't feel blessed. We don't feel like we have much to offer, if anything at all. And yet you choose us. Speak to us today, and may the words of my mouth and the thoughts and meditations of our hearts be pleasing and acceptable in your sight. For you are our rock and our redeemer. Amen. What seems like a thousand years ago, but was probably only about seven or eight, I worked my second favorite job I have ever had. My first favorite being this job that I am doing right now. But my second favorite job was wearing Papa John's black and red and khaki and driving my electric blue 2001 Hyundai Tiburon with a sunroof around Del Mar and Carmel Valley, California, delivering pizza. It was great. Except for certain pizza holidays. Halloween, yes, but also the Super Bowl. I was thinking about it today as I do every Super Bowl Sunday. The Super Bowl was our Super Bowl. It was crazy. The phones would ring off the hook. But most nights when you were delivering pizza, it was more of a steady flow of orders that I got to drive from house to house. Here is the thing about being a pizza delivery driver. You feel like the most special, the most famous person in the world. All you do is take a pizza, put it in a box, put it in a hot bag, take it to your car, drive it to a house, ring the doorbell, and then you are met with such cries of adulation. You would not believe it. Pizza man, the kids would scream. And then they would open the door and they would say, pizza lady? Literally all I did was drive this pizza to you, I wanted to say. I smell like anchovies and mop water. But before I was there, there was no dinner. 
And then there is cheesy, carby goodness brought to your door in 45 minutes or less. Never have I felt like I was contributing more to the happiness of the world than when I worked for Papa John's. Not all heroes wear capes. It was my favorite job, partially because it made people so very happy, and because it wasn't hard, and because I got to listen to about 25 hours of audiobooks and public radio programming every week. I memorized the schedule of San Diego NPR, and my favorite night, the holy grail of all nights, the Super Bowl of San Diego NPR, was when the splendid table was on. Did anyone ever listen to The Splendid Table with Lynn Rosetto Casper? I loved it. It was a cooking show, but Lynn Rosetto Casper, I imagined, uh, might someday adopt me and become my extra grandmother. She would give me big hugs, and she would smell like apple pie, and she would go into the fridge and grate some fresh Parmigiano-Reggiano and make homemade pasta. But my favorite part of that favorite show of my second favorite job was when they would play a game called Stump the Cook. It was basically like this. Somebody would call in, and they would give random ingredients that were in their refrigerator. And they would ask Lynn and a guest to make a meal out of these random ingredients. Here's some that are actually from the website. Tim from Scranton, Pennsylvania has maple syrup, beef kielbasa, dark beer, fresh coconut, and alligator pears. Florence from St. Johnsbury, Vermont has energy drink, firm tofu, apple butter, smoked trout, and jalapeno peppers. Mmm, good dinner from that. Steve from Omaha, Nebraska has Fuji apples, raspberry chipotle barbecue sauce, salami, panettone bread, and Kraft singles. Lynn makes a meal from Ben's ingredient list of Longjing tea, peaches and plums, preserved vegetables, dried fried fish maw, and bittersweet chocolate. Katie from Washington, D.C. has cabbage, sweet potatoes, pomegranates, membrillo, which I learned after the first service is cheese with quinces in it, who knew, and a big hunk of prosciutto. And my favorite, this person had whipping cream, duck fat, orange peach mango juice, capers, and fish sauce. Mm-mm, good. It was a miracle to me, not that they failed, but that they ever succeeded in making a meal. But sometimes the guest would say, hey, I'd cook that, with all of this random stuff that was just hanging out in somebody's fridge. I think about soup a lot this time of year, not just because of chili cook-off, but because it's the best time of year to make soup. We get out the Dutch oven and put in some olive oil, saute some onions and garlic, stick a little bit of pepper and kosher salt in there, and no matter what you have, it becomes a meal. It's this kind of alchemy, this, that whatever strange assortment of things is in your fridge, two shriveled stalks of celery, three quarters of a red onion, a can of Italian tomatoes, a half-eaten bag of baby carrots, some cannellini beans, and two slices of bacon that are just about to not be good anymore. And yet, some strange alchemy doesn't turn lead to gold, but it turns all of this 
into not just a meal, but something nourishing and comforting. It feels like magic. It's a strange rule of, of the universe. You put all this stuff in there in a pot, and in about a half an hour or an hour, you'll have soup. You'll have something that will nourish you. A few years ago, I heard a quote. I don't know who said it. It just keeps coming to me over and over and over, but I've wanted to tattoo it on my hand. The quote said this, do what you can, not what you can't. Do what you can, not what you can't. See, I love this quote because I always want to do what I can't. I want to do what I can't. Like many of us, I suffer from a disease called just-itis. I wonder if you might suffer from it too. It goes something like this. If I just had 10 hours a week to volunteer, I would serve at the church. If I just had three to five years of relevant experience, if I just was good with kids, good with teenagers, good with the elderly, good with details, good with cooking, good with flowers, good with public speaking, good with spreadsheets, then I would serve at the church. If I just was good at blank, like this other person, if we just had this program like my other church, if I just had more money to give, just, just, just. But I wonder, what if? What if God could work, can work, with just exactly what you have? Just exactly what we have. These people in this room, in this place. What if the power of God, the spirit of God, is like that magic that happens with olive oil and onions and garlic? What if God wants to nourish the world using just exactly what we have? The thing about, I love about Jesus is Jesus did not suffer from justitis. You can see it in this scripture. He gave his most famous sermon, the Sermon on the Mount, not to a group of elites, not to the Roman emperor, but to a bunch of random people gathered on a mountain from Galilee. You can imagine it. Here's all of these people, peasants, donkey repair drivers, Billy Bob from Capernaum. These, these weren't Caesar. These probably weren't even the most famous rabbis and priests. He looked out at them, and he kind of blew their minds because he saw them exactly as they were, and he called them blessed. Blessed. It's this word in Greek. It's makarios. It's this word that means lucky or fortunate or happy. Some commentators say that it was used to refer to the Greek and Roman pantheon of gods, like, blessed are Zeus and Hera. Well, maybe they were, but Billy Bob from Capernaum, is he blessed? Not so much. Other commentators say you could translate it as congratulations, which I invite you to read that again. Congratulations to those who mourn. Congratulations when you're persecuted because of righteousness. Congratulations to the poor in spirit. This is kind of a strange thing to say, right? For years, I kind of have looked at the Beatitudes and thought, this is a to-do list. I need to get to grieving and crying and being persecuted, and then I'm going to get a good reward in heaven. But a commentator blew my mind a couple years ago when he said, this is not a list of things to do. It's a statement of what God has done. God looks out at all of us, weeping and mourning, those of us who are meek, or in other words, can only think of the right retort to that person that insulted us three days later in the shower. 
People who aren't spiritual superstars. People who are poor in spirit. People who aren't fancy, who are kind of ordinary. Jesus looks at all those people and all of us and calls us blessed, lucky, favored. And if that's true, if we're blessed, then like it has always been, if we are blessed, it is to be a blessing. This month, we're focusing on Vision 2020 uh, on service here at Wrightsville. It's this old adage in churches that 10% of people do 90% of the work. And that may be true, but this does not mean that this sermon is a volunteer recruitment time because that's a pretty lousy use of a sermon, right? We don't serve because we need warm bodies to teach the children in wiggle worship or wrap up the communion loaves. We serve because it changes us. Because there's nothing more humbling, is there, than when you take a gift that you have, your metaphorical two stalks of wilted celery, and you use it to serve, and by the power of God, you get some sort of disproportionately incredible result, right? Somebody says they made it through their chemo because you brought flowers to them every Monday morning, and you texted them to see if they were okay. Somebody tells you in Sunday school when you're in the fourth grade that you might be a preacher someday. Somebody remembers a throwaway sentence you said when you were teaching a Bible study and mentions it to you five years later when their loved one is in hospice. The gifts that we have to offer are not just impressive things. They can even be the broken parts of us, the weak parts of us, the pain we felt. But part of serving God is by doing what we can, giving what we have, not doing what we can't. A couple years ago, I asked Pastor Doug and Donna this morning if I had told this story before, and I said, I'm not sure if I have, but if I have, then forgive me. This is my wilted celery to offer to you, and maybe God can use it to make soup. But a couple years ago, we were having an Easter dinner. Like a bunch of good millennials, we did not have a lot of furniture, and we certainly didn't have like a beautiful table with 17 leaves we could put in to host the entire neighborhood. It was one of these dinners that had expanded exponentially. There were about four of us originally, and then there became six, and then there was eight, and then by the end of the day, there were 16 people invited to Easter dinner. We had enough food, but we did not have enough table. <laughs> we had this one table, and my friend said, hey, the important part is not the table, what the table's made of. The important part is what's on the table, right? And so she said, we can do this. We got a MacGyver this. And so we went around her house. We grabbed random pieces of plywood from the garage. We took an old lazy boy and some camp chairs from the shed and wiped the spider webs off of them. We put, we stacked things up on cinder blocks. We took every single one of our seminary textbooks and stacked them up. And we were like, thank God, we knew these would be good for something. We laid a bunch of fabric over the top. And you know what? Ain't nobody remembered the table. They remembered the feast that was there. Friends, there is a feast to share here in this church. And let's be honest, what is important is not just our piece of plywood or our little bit of celery. It's what God can do with all of those things that we bring. What's important is building the table, giving our ingredients to the soup so that people can be nourished with the power of God.
We build it every time we step out in faith and do a little something that makes us uncomfortable. My mom would sing in the church choir growing up, and she said she didn't have the best voice in the world, even though I think she has a beautiful soprano. But what I remember is not her singing a solo in the choir. I remember her singing in the car and while she cooked and all of those little times when she didn't think anyone was listening. And this week, I thought about a song that she sang. It just came to me. Little is much when God is in it. Labor not for wealth or fame. There's a crown, and you can win it if you go in Jesus' name. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.